0: In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or the other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition, it's intuition. Really-
1: Hi and welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair.
0: Good evening. Hi, how are you? Not too bad, bit croaky in the voice, but other than that I'm alright.
1: We can cope with that. So tonight we're going to be talking about stalking, a little bit about clients who stalk their psychologists, and then a bit about some theory about why people might stalk. Then we'll be having a chat about a couple of articles we've come across, and that's about it.
2: That's
0: probably about it. It's probably enough.
1: So do you want to kick us off?
0: I can't really remember the real inspiration for this. I think it's just something that I've always wanted to read about Mm -hmm. and never actually found the time to do it. One of my clinical supervisors talked to me about clients who stalk and sort of saying, well, you know, look, Hunter, it's not actually just men stalking women. It can be the other way around. Part of a big discussion around boundaries and working as a psychologist and a few things like that. So, And I think that conversation stayed with me for many, many years. So I thought that would be quite interesting. It's kind of like that. So there's some kind of fascination with you know the things that are obscure, hmm. which psychologists happen to like to do that with people yes, rather than say other things. So the paper I've got is called Clients Who Stalk Psychologists' Prevalence, Methods and Motives. It was in Professional Psychology Research and Practice in 2005 by Rosemary Purcell and colleagues. This is uh, an Australian-based study, actually a Victorian mm-hmm. uh, study, so from the state where Amy and I live. It starts off talking about well, one of the ethical principles of doing clinical work is that you know, do no harm to clients, but there's no uh, ethical obligation on behalf of clients to do no harm to psychologists. Yeah,
1: apart from the usual legal. Yeah,
0: you know <laughs> the, the legal constraints that we all have yes. in in this society. So they talk about the relationship between client therapists is more or less satisfactory for most, you know, clients, mm-hmm. right? But there is a minority that uh, intrude on the lives of therapists. They define stalking as when one person repetitively intrudes on another to the extent that they fear for their safety. So there's the intrusion element and then there's also the feeling fear by the victim. Mm-hmm. And that, that comes up a bit later as, as kind of an important distinction. Some of the previous research they cite is 5% of university counsellors have been found to uh, have had persistent stalking. In one sample, 53% of an inpatient psychiatrist unit had harassment, threaten, or stalking behaviour. So I mean, there's a collection mm. of behaviours there. Also, you know, there was an Italian study, so it's not just sort of a white Western thing, You know, where 11% of Italian nurses, psychs and psychiatrists had some stalking behaviour. They talk at length about a United States study where 10% of psychologists had been stalked. So it's quite common. Well, if you think about like the frequency of left-handers, right? Yeah. Left-handers are about 10%, 10% hmm. 15% of the population. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that's common.
1: It wouldn't be unusual for you to come across that sort of behavior.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So one in 10. So 41% of those who'd had stalking had fear. 70% had their response was anxiety or anger. And half who'd been stalked or had stalking behavior had modified some aspect of the professional practice, mm-hmm. so it's quite interesting because it has an emotional impact, but also like a behavioural impact as well. So they talk about depends a bit on the definitions. So in modern society, the legal sort of definitions talk about it being at least two intrusions and so not yeah. just one, and a response of fear. Mm-hmm. They use a higher standard because you know that could just be two phone calls on yeah. the one day, right? And then that could be received as stalking versus say like you know ten or more intrusions going on for more than two weeks, yeah. I think is the standard they use. So a bit of a difference in the way you kind of do it. I mean, a couple of phone calls or perhaps more modernly, like Facebook, mm. you know, emails or something like that. Yeah. You could have a couple of those, but it's, I mean, that would still be intrusion. But
1: yeah. But what's the threshold for it?
0: Yeah, that, that kind of mm. thing. So, so this study looked at the prevalence characteristics of psychs who, who had been stalked and the characteristics of the clients who stalked them. Okay. That's what I meant. So a pretty impressive size study. So they randomly selected 1,750 psychologists in Victoria from mm. the registration board list. Yeah. So that's the definitive list of all the psychologists. The qualifications in Australia are roughly equivalent to others in Western countries. Yep. So particularly roughly equivalent to the United States. The total population was 6,500 registered psychologists. Mm-hmm of which 74% were female. And so the random selection was 1,750, of which 73% were female. So okay. Surveys were male, measure of demographic clinical characteristics. They avoided using the term stalking, so they didn't sort of prime yep. the respondents. They talked about eight different behaviours, so whether they'd been followed, whether they had surveillance, whether a client had loitered at work or at home or somewhere else, whether there had been unwanted approaches, unsolicited telephone calls and then as a separate category unsolicited letters faxes (laughs) which is sort of perhaps speaks to it was 2005 um, although the amount of practices that
1: still use faxes just amazes me that they'll only accept referrals by fax not by email things like that because it's supposed to be more secure
0: yeah i mean although uh, the thing i like about a fax is like It prints out and goes somewhere, whereas an email could just go to like an inbox that's never get checked.
1: I always think of who's picking it up at the other end.
0: Oh, yeah. Could be anyone. Oh, no. No, no. It is anyone. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) It gets there, but it gets gets to 100 different people.
0: That's it. Mm. So they used a conservative definition of stalking, which is multiple. So 10 or more intrusions, not just two over a period of more than two weeks. Prev- other research, I think, has shown that, that that's kind of a good threshold. Yeah. And then they asked about the nature and impact of the st- stalking behavior. I think they inserted a joke into the paper. So they mailed out the research. Yeah. Right? And then standard practice for research, when you send out a questionnaire or give someone a questionnaire, is to follow up. hmm Right? They sent her a minor letter uh, like a week later or something. Yeah. But no additional letter was sent, quote as it was considered inappropriate in the context of study to to, to dispatch more than two unsolicited reminders to respondents. (laughs) (laughs) End quote.
1: Beautiful. uh, Well done. (laughs)
0: Glorious. So... (laughs) So they, they, they got about a 60% response rate. I think it was about 830 respondents. That's a good response rate. Right? Yeah, it's pretty good. Apologies for like the long list of stats here, but I just really want to kind of give a picture and then I think your article probably helped to kind of flesh out some of the theory behind it. So, Sounds good. So the lifetime prevalence of stalking was 20%. 20% of, of the people had ever been stalked. Yeah. And then in the last 12 months it was 8%. Okay. Had been stalked in the last 12 months. It was highest in forensic psychology, so that was 32% of forensic psychs. Makes sense. 24 and 20% for clinical and counseling, respectively. Mm-hmm. And those three were statistically higher than educational psychs. Neurosykes and org psychs, which was sixteen, eleven and seven percent. Okay. Yeah. Which which is interesting, like you're like, oh it makes sense, right? Mm. And you start to think about okay well who's the population you're dealing with yeah. really? And like, what's
1: the environment as well?
0: Absolutely. Like
1: for those last three categories it feels like a contained kind of environment and context that you'd be providing the service about yeah. a contained reason. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the others are open to a whole different bunch of issues and a whole different population.
0: Ninety five percent of those Who'd been stalked worked in direct client care, mm-hmm. right? And they were an experienced bunch, right? So, of the psychologists who'd been stalked in the last 12 months, they had been working for about 8.8 years or been registered for about 8.8 years. So, it's an okay. experienced group. So, it's not sort of an inexperienced group. Yeah. F- flipping to the clients, 62% were outpatients and mostly outpatients, 5% were inpatients, 12% were, stu- uh, were relatives. Usually, a spouse or former yeah. spouse who stalked did the stalking behavior Eight mm-hmm. percent was was from a single contact, so like a court okay. re- assessment for a court report, yeah or an occupational assessment or something yeah. like that. The gender split was interesting, so sixty three percent of the stalkers were men okay so which kind of fits I guess with the stereotype of of, of the stereotype I had of men being stalkers, but that's still thirty seven percent women stalking. Yeah. I thought was quite interesting. It is. Although the other thought I had with that is that predominantly more women seek out therapy yeah, versus men. So it'd be quite interesting if you did some kind of calculation about the frequency of men to women.
1: And perhaps men to women in different settings. So, like in forensic, I'm thinking there are more men.
0: Yep, yep, exactly right. Um,
1: hmm. There yeah. are a whole bunch of different things you could break down.
0: The general thing was they didn't find... Many differences according to the psychologist characteristics, like okay. in terms of gender and stuff like that. So more to do with maybe a little bit of the specialization, but it was really, it was more to do with, the uh, stalker, yeah. stalker characteristics seem to be influential. So those of those who stalked, the psychologist said that 45% were mentally disordered at times. So PDs, some kind of psychosis or an axis one disorder, 17% said they were unsure about the mental state. Mm-hmm. Average stalking time was about six months post the start of the relationship.
1: Okay, so s- six months duration or six, like it started six months after s- they'd had... Six months partner. after. Okay.
0: But the standard deviation was like incredibly large. Right. So it sounded like it was a quite a broad yeah. thing. 44% were same-gendered stalking. Mm-hmm. This is where, where I thought it got interesting. So male therapists were more likely to experience such stalking Than female therapists and male therapists are more likely to have same gender stalking. So that's consistent with other research, but they they could actually just be an artifact of the definition of stalking because the definition of it is that you're more likely to, you have to have the fear component. Mm. And so if you're a man and you have a man do stalking intrusive behavior, you're more likely to feel fear from that than if it was a woman doing the same activity to you. Yeah. But the it's authors, a different
1: sort of physical threat.
0: Yeah, yeah. But what they point out was it's a different perceived physical yeah. threat. Yeah, it's a different, exactly. Actually, just because of the stalker is female doesn't yeah. actually mean that it's uh, they're quote unquote safer. Yeah. So the motivations. So I mean this is the, the psychologist ascribing a motivation. Like mm-hmm. They obviously didn't survey the people who stalked them. Yeah. But two although th- I
1: did find some. Research is not what I'm talking about today, but I did find some research that was asking people about their own stalking behaviour. So there is some stuff out there about people explaining or saying why it was yeah. that they did those behaviours.
0: Did, did you see anything on cyber stalking?
1: I came across some things, but I didn't read the articles.
0: Because I think the advent of like Facebook in particular yeah. and stalking your ex. Or stalking colleagues or, you know, that kind of thing. Or stalking your therapist Mm. on Facebook. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Because you can do that without anyone knowing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Especially if you're just gathering information rather than contacting.
0: Yeah, that's it. And that spans a whole spectrum of sinister to I have a crush on them. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, resentment. So most people so most people perceive the stalking as triggered by resentment okay. towards the psychologist yeah so sixty eight percent usually because of adverse effects of professional duties this is like reporting of suspected child abuse, mm-hmm. adverse reports for a court, failure to provide recommendations sought by client yeah resentment after termination mm-hmm. because a psychologist Circumstances might change. So, yeah. you, know, you might switch jobs, and you say, well, "Look, I can't see you um, anymore because I'm going to be working in a different part of town, or it's a different client group, or whatever." Yeah. Or the client, you know, perhaps you terminate or you set boundaries with a client because of inappropriate behaviour, and yeah. then they doesn't go down well. Doesn't go down well. The one that I'm, I'm was interested in was infatuation. Okay. So. 19% seem to think it was about infatuation, which I thought was much... I was expecting that to be a much higher proportion. Uh, I think I've heard about that more from mm. colleagues than than sort of resentment.
1: Or does that play into your sort of media portrayal of stalking behaviours or right? mm. sort of, you know, jilted lover kind of...
0: Yep. Yeah. Which is not inaccurate. No. But it may just be inaccurate in terms of the frequency, so...
1: Or frequency of client to professional rather than general stalking. Yeah, yeah right. Trying.
0: Yeah, there could be, yeah, because it could actually just be in other situations. Yes, yeah. yeah. She's not a psychologist. You know, maybe we need to, it's the way we dress. <laughs> <laughs> Have a listen to the end of the last pod if you haven't. was in a white coat. a <laughs> white coat. White coat or not. <laughs> so they talked about so 90% involved in declarations of attraction by patients, with poor, ba- with poor boundaries, and mm-hmm. they sort of made that clear. A handful of cases where there was a decline of advances then actually precipitated violence, but followed by stalking. Yeah. And then they talked about that there was a minority of those ones of the infatuation. Some clients were craving empathy or acceptance. Yeah. And then other reasons were uh, boredom, lonely, testing the limits of the psych's tolerance, relatives seeking to influence the therapy. Which is interesting. was like one in five psychologists had no reason what the stalking was about. Okay, yeah. No association between the motivation and gender. Mm-hmm. So infatuation or resentment was not more likely if you're male or female, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. No association between ment- motivation, mental health status, or specialisation. But they did note 100% of the forensic clients seemed to be resentful. Okay. Like 42% of the clinical work was infatuation. Right. Yeah. I don't know why that wasn't statistically significant, but
1: yeah, um, interesting.
0: Anyway, they were very thorough, as you can probably tell. Duration methods, stalking in about a quarter was stalking lasted for a month or less. Mm -hmm. 56% was a month to to six months, and 12% it lasted for longer than 12 months, which is a really long time. It is. To have intrusive behavior in your life.
1: Yeah, and I guess thinking back to the other paper that I read that I'm not talking about that perhaps I shouldn't (laughs) be (laughs) mentioned.
0: We'll put it on the reference list.
1: Yeah, but... That's longer than what the average stalking was in the community. Yeah, right. I can't remember the exact amount, but it was... I think it was under a month. Captured the majority of cases. So, it does seem to be something different about stalking a professional versus stalking someone else.
0: Maybe it's just more commitment to, like, <laughs> get down to the therapy room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a practical psychologist. I've got to think practically. Yeah, anyway, fair enough. Did you was longer if infatuation was the motivation, not resentment. Yeah. So which kind of fits, yeah. fits what you're saying. So uh, m- the medium was six months versus no, resent- resentment was two months. The opposite. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then uh, they listed all the percentages for the way they did it. The top three were 65% was telephone, 58% was unwanted approaches, and 43% was loitering. I reckon loitering, I'd find that creepy. Yeah, me too. Telephone call, I reckon. I'd, I uh, think it was, well, depends I guess, on the call. Actually, I don't know. Actually, I think it, it all sounds a bit creepy. Yeah. One third who'd been stalked had vexatious complaints or malicious gossip spread. Okay. And infatuated clients were more, used more methods resentful clients. So 4.2 versus 2.8. So Mm. infatuated stalkers seem to stalk for longer and use more methods, were a bit more creative.
1: Yeah, perhaps that speaks to sort of the resentful stalking coming from sort of a burst of anger or a sort of, um, Mm. you know, quick retaliation and then then that fizzling out.
0: Yeah, it peters out, Yeah, Yeah, that kind of stuff. Mm. The more scary bit was the threats of violence. So 38% who'd been stalked had threats of violence. Mm -hmm. So there's like... You know, I'll ruin your practice. I'm going to harm you. I'm going to harm your loved ones. Yeah. I'm going to threaten to kill you. Three of the stalked people had knives brandished at them, which Mm. would have been very scary. 17% had had threats to third parties like reception staff. Yeah. One in 10 had been physically assaulted. Mm -hmm. So this ranged from pushing, hitting to attempted strangulation. Yeah. 6% third party had been assaulted. 13% had their property damaged. So usually this is either their psych's car yeah. or their office. Mm-hmm. So kind of like transferring the psychologist to mm. in an inanimate object yeah. is the way I would understand it. No gender effects, any of this stuff. Mm. 20% of those who've been threatened were assaulted, but 86% of those who've been attacked had been threatened. So one in five threatened were then actually assaulted. Yeah, From the psychologist's perspective, 71% who'd been stalked modified their personal professional life. In response to these intrusions, you know, this is like improving security at home, people changing their phone number, changing their work number. Ten people relocated their work uh, and six people relocated their house, Okay, which is full on. Although, property prices were much cheaper (laughs) back back then.
1: But still, you'd have to be pretty affected to go. Yeah, look, I do. I jest. (laughs) Um, But
0: the... (laughs) Absolutely. Amy's lost it. Anyway, um, absenteeism was uh, one in five reported some absenteeism. Um, usually that was sort of two to seven days, but there was a very small number that had sort of period of like prolonged stress leave. Mm-hmm. 10% reduced going on social outings. One in three considered leaving their profession. Mm. And that was more, more than likely if you'd had a vexatious complaint against you. You know, leaving your profession, and particularly leaving a profession like psychology where, because nowadays, you have to study for a very, very long period of time. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I think psychologists really carry the identity of, oh, I'm a psychologist. Absolutely. Versus yeah. like, I work in psychology. Yeah. You know, I think we carry that identity for better or for worse. So to leave that is a pretty big deal. Mm. Almost everyone sought help from colleagues or friends and family. Quarter reported it to police. And what was really interesting was 75% reported that training did not prepare them for instances of unwanted intrusions and that there's an absence of this critical discussion of this topic. I'd um, agree
1: with that. Have it, you had any no, training or advice none, about
0: none at all. It, no. It's only only when situations occurred. Yeah. And you're kinda of like, What? Really? I did not know this. Yeah. We've had
1: discussions around boundaries, but not about sort of safety
2: or
0: Yeah. I mean I I, I, I certainly things. had one instance of a behaviour that would verge on mm. one of those behaviours, or was, and I remember it kind of took me till the next day to realise that that it actually happened, and yeah. that, that that was something that was like I needed to have a really completely different response to it,
1: mm. So of take a while to process it.
0: Yeah, like because I didn't really like I had a totally different reaction to it, which was like I was worried about the client, mm. and then I was like, oh no, hang on. So and I then,
1: wonder if that's um a bit discipline specific as well. Like I wonder whether any sort of forensic psychs out there get a bit more guidance on managing their Mm. safety and sort of personal versus professional life, Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas like working in a hospital, I think the only time I'd ever heard it mentioned was when you might have someone being angry about the lack of care or the care not resolving, Mm. the, the medical care not resolving the problem of the patient. Because sometimes medical care doesn't, yeah, and staff being threatened and having to be walked to their cars, yeah, that was probably the only discussion I had in my clinical training about it. Because yeah. I worked in health psychology, like we didn't yeah. work with, quote unquote, criminal populations. Yeah. Or I have populations. had
1: things of being walked to the car, yeah, because of concerns about clients sort of loitering or following people or that sort of thing, yeah. But certainly not in training. Something that just comes up on the job
0: yeah, those discussions i perceived them to be not focused at me which mm. was, you know it was focused at the women in the clinic mm. You know, it, was, it
1: was sort of there's a bias there that they assumed that you could look after yourself or that yeah. it wouldn't be as much of a or maybe issue for you. Or,
0: may, or maybe the bias was internal which is like i thought you know i didn't think it applied to me because mm. i thought i could look after myself yeah you know, whereas then men are trained to perceive the world as hostile mm. versus Women are. Women are. Yeah. Um, so particularly, you know, in the middle of the winter walking yeah, from a dark. a dark hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So and they just talked about that, you know, people are not expecting that psychologists would be subjected to instances of unwanted intrusions. They make the point that, you know, it's common that if you're working in face-to-face or direct client work that you're going to come across this. I mean, so 20%, so one in five. Yeah. You know, that's a pretty common number across the course of your career. Yeah, absolutely. And they're sort of saying... For clinical and consult counselling, it's about you know, direct client work. Forensic, it's probably going to be around reports. Yeah. And so they, their suggestions are around a need for greater awareness of this and attention to this issue. They sort of touch on some of the theory, psychology by its nature, where working with vulnerable people... We're working with a segment of the population that's lonely, isolated, or mentally disordered in many cases and can have poor boundaries, and this can lead to inappropriate questions about therapists or even sexual advances. And so you know, if we're ill prepared for this stuff, we can ignore these advances and we can just sort of feel unease. yeah and then on the flip side, we can reject these advances or, but then that can have drastic consequences like yeah it's a very interesting spectrum. And that we're not really talked about. No,
1: it's not. You sort of learn your own way of managing that and you kind of muddle your way through it in a way. Yeah. Sort of figure it out on a case-by-case basis rather than going, okay, this is what I need to do.
0: And it's, skill- it's a skill that you once you kind of get, you don't realize you do it.
1: Although I was thinking when you were saying before about the prevalence for those who have been practicing longer. Yeah. There's a a bunch of research about psychologists' boundaries that as you practice, the longer you practice, (laughs) the less firm your boundaries are. Yep. And I wonder whether that is related, thinking that you can let your boundaries be a little. I've been been working. I've been working
0: for a while. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Exactly. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And and sort of and missing
1: uh, those some of those cues before it gets to the point where it's dangerous. Uh,
0: Look, I I would suggest that that's a plausible thing, Mm, and that's that's where making sure that you have regular supervision of psychologists and actually continue to do that. Yeah. Uh, Briefly, they talk about stalking as an attachment disorder, so I think you're going to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, sort of this disintegration of boundaries between themselves and the object of affection. So that's particularly relevant in stalking, uh, infatuation, motivated stalking. That's yep. what they're saying. Transference issues when you're training is usually talked about. So that's the f- transference is the feeling of a client towards you. Mm-hmm. Countertransference is the feeling of a the therapist towards a the client. Yeah. And increasingly they're talked about. Although when I did my first degree. They weren't. That wasn't talked about. Yeah. Maybe that was just the model of the way we were talked about really in that.
1: Yeah. I think it depends on the course.
0: Yeah. Whereas the, doing the masters now, hmm. you know, I think mean, that was in the first subject. Yeah. There's just a lot of discussion about counter-transference. So you need to have, have an understanding of that and then you need to manage it. You need to be aware of how problems can develop. You need to be able to set clear boundaries at the outset. They suggest doing it verbally but also written. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem that specific to a client. You can return to that discussion later on rather than kind of having to bring it up when a problem arises instead of like just setting clear boundaries you know, how often you see them this is how you contact me yeah i will not contact you otherwise blah, blah blah and sort of like training people to how to manage these issues in a way that gives dignity to the client as well so mm. does it effectively and also training people to terminate when problems arise yeah terminate the therapy not the client <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's a terrible phrase
0: oh uh, i don't know i like it like because like i think it, it's got a real sense of Finality. I mean, I think that that's actually true to what you do.
1: Yeah, it just doesn't sit well with me. It's one no. of those words
2: <laughs> just go mm,
0: nah. Yeah, but I'm I'm, I'm a like a harder edge. Like the in the hospital system, there's this move to like talk about the patients as consumers. It's like no, they're patients, they're man. Patient. <laughs> they're patient. If you yeah. they, they have to wait around, they are patient. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like uh, you know, and they're, they're not consumers. No, no. I'm not. Things are being done to them. Yeah. Language is a funny thing. Language. is <laughs> <So. laughs> Yeah. They make an interesting point, which is that there's often accusations of poor management of transference, but actually in their clinical experience, that's typically unjustified yeah. in stalking cases. So it's often that's the claim that's made, but actually that doesn't really explain it. And then, that, and then they talk about the fact that it was an experienced sample yeah. and, and that you know, you'd expect more experienced clinicians on the whole to be better at managing hmm. transference issues. Yeah. And then the sort of finish off of saying, you know, psychologists are in a position of power and trust in therapeutic relationships accentuated by clients' vulnerability and distress. This imbalance usually means that the client is at greater risk of abuse. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, that would be a topic for another yeah. podcast, but there are risks for psychologists working with distressed and complicated populations. So that was about all I had hmm. to say on that one. Interesting. Interesting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I have an article called Look Who's Stalking. Obsessive Pursuit and Attachment Theory. <laughs> I is, thought you might want to enjoy that just for a moment. That, is that a... It's a movie, Look Who's Talking. Yeah, about. Look Who's Talking. Yeah. Oh, is like a baby?
0: Yeah. And I think Bruce Willis. That just gets me onto... Can I just go on a diatribe? Yeah, sure. It gets me onto this whole thing of like people who totally nail the the, the title of research articles. Yeah. And okay. making them interesting.
1: We could just have a pod where we just list one after the <laughs> other.
0: <laughs> well, see, the thing is there's so few and far between. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did a presentation on distress screening in cancer patients mm. and where I basically, like, worked out how many, out of how many people who had been screened then came and saw me, right? Mm. So I called it, how many distressed patients does it take to, no, how many screened patients does it take to see a psychologist? <laughs> I, sub- it. I, su- I submitted that to a conference. Yeah. I was the first speaker in one of the, uh, in the first session. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's multiple sessions. Yeah. But like, I, I really wonder whether maybe it was I because so. I nailed the title. Yeah. and Not actually because of the research. Yeah. Anyway.
1: So, I look who's no- <laughs> is I'm Sorry, I have another one. All
0: right. Which is that someone said that they wanted to do a study on anxiety relapse. No, people who'd recovered from anxiety yeah. and call it once were worries.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you now just want to write research that fits oh. a title that you've already thought of, don't you?
0: <laughs> It's as good as reason as any. Anyway, yep. so Look Who's Stalking.
1: Look Who's Stalking by Patton, Nobles and Fox in the Journal of Criminal Justice in 2010. So this research spoke about how prior research had focused on behaviour rather than a theory or looking at long-term predisposing factors. And they quoted... The first person to look at attachment in stalking, which was back in 1992, saying that stalking is an extreme disorder of attachment. So the idea is that there's rejection inherent in stalking in that you're continually seeking out some kind of interaction with someone who's rejecting you. And so this sort of rejection is continually Fueling that insecure mm. attachment. There have been only a few studies who, that have looked at stalking and attachment. When they have, they've lumped insecure attachment in together. So anxious, avoidant attachment and anxious, preoccupied attachment all into one mm-hmm. insecure category rather than splitting them apart. Yeah. And so.
0: Listen, so if, if you are unsure what Amy's talking about, go back and listen to pod four. Yeah. I think I give a brief i.e., 20 minute <laughs> discussion on, <laughs> on the theory Shall of the I try
1: attachment. A, a 15 seconds?
0: I'm sure that everyone would be happy with that.
1: Yeah. Okay, so the 15 second version is that people who are, have an anxious, preoccupied attachment seek out proximity to their caregiver and are really anxious when they leave. And then those who are avoidant in their attachment avoid connecting with their caregiver and are kind of dismissive. And, yeah.
0: Yep. And then there's a, a secure type and then there's a, uh, disorganized. a disorganized type. Yep. Yeah.
1: So they spoke about how by nature, stalking appears to reflect an anxious attachment where you're seeking proximity to someone who's angry or frightened and who's responding negatively to you. Mm. So you're not kind of taking on that feedback and you're continually trying to seek out mm. that mm. dynamic. So while they acknowledge that there's a good theoretical base for it, Uh, They say that there's not much in the way of... um, Actual results. Actual results, exactly. Mm. And so sort of talked through a few early studies that found that people who later on stalked reported that they'd had changes in their caregivers before the age of six, so had sort of an unsettled child-parent relationship, and just over half had experienced trauma at the hands of their caregivers. In childhood. So kind of building up that picture of of a population that perhaps has some vulnerability to insecure attachment. Yeah.
0: I mean so if you were gonna try and give someone an insecure attachment, yeah. Traumatize them and disrupt their caregiver would be sort of the two main things that I would think of. yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That sort of instability and volatility. Yeah. Yeah. So, the previous research has looked at students and people in prison populations. There's a couple of studies that look at inpatients. So, psych inpatients, yep. And then they've also had a look at emotional correlates. So, propensity to anger, jealousy, need for control, that sort of thing. Some psychological disorders as well. So, it's all kind of circled around insecure attachment. Mm -hmm. So, that's sort of a bit of a brief sketch of the past research. So this study aimed to see whether there was a relationship between stalking behaviour, so self-reported stalking behaviour, and psychological disorders and past treatment, and then also the two, well, any attachment in particular, but looking at preoccupied or avoidant attachment. So they... Because you
0: wouldn't think that an avoidant attached person would necessarily... No. Because they would withdraw exactly rather than approach
1: yeah yeah so that was their thing that in the past research those two categories by being lumped together may have muddled the results a bit yeah you'd end up with different opposing kind of behaviors yeah. or responses you would assume so they surveyed college students 2,783 wow. college students 58.5 percent were female just over three quarters were white 95.5 percent identified as heterosexual. And so they sent out a web-based survey. The survey asked about current or past episodes of perpetrating stalking. They didn't use the word stalking like in your mm. your study, but they asked about harassing, frightening behavior, intrusiveness, unwanted behavior, threatening, and it needed to involve the same individual and occur more than once. So they used the two two or more mm-hmm. cutoff. And They also asked whether it included one or more items from the National Violence Against Women Survey, which was modified to include cyber behaviour. So they acknowledged that it was quite a conservative estimate of stalking because even though they only used the two episodes or more, it required people to acknowledge that that the behaviour that they did was harassment, Mm. frightening, etc. So they expected that it would be an underestimate. Mm.
0: Because, yeah, because you're not surveying the victim.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you're missing out the people who don't perceive their behavior as inappropriate.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah.
1: So they also asked them to complete the Experiences in Close Relationship Scale, the revised version, which is a self-reported adult attachment scale. And they asked them if they'd ever had a psychological diagnosis and if they'd ever had treatment for a psychological issue. So the results were that 5.8% reported that they'd engaged in stalking behavior, and 65.8% of these were female. Right. Yeah, so more than in the research that you mentioned. The prevalence of psychological disorders was pretty close to the general population Mm -hmm. in terms of it was mostly depression, anxiety. There was a small proportion that had personality disorders, so less than what they would expect in a sample of people who stalked, given Mm. past research about that. They also asked about anger-related issues as well as DSM-type disorders. So they identified that females were also overrepresented in the students who had psychological disorders Mm. as well, and that few people with a history of a psych diagnosis had engaged in stalking behaviour. So there wasn't a relationship between those two. The exception was when they put it all into a multivariate analysis that people who had had anger-related issues were more likely to engage in stalking behavior. Yeah,
0: well, I mean, that would fit with the resentment.
1: Exactly, yeah. The other in disorders, the top, non-significant. Not so much.
0: And, and you would think about, that like, if you think about, like, other disorders would include avoidant attachment and, and disorganized attachment. Yeah. And even perhaps secure attachment. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So they found in terms of attachment that there was a strong predictor of anxious preoccupied attachment with stalking behavior and that avoidant attachment was Mm non-significant um as was secure Mm -hmm. yeah so i think their findings fitted mainly with what they were expecting in terms of that attachment to then um stalking behavior it was a little bit different not finding those psychological disorders but it it sort of provided a bit of backing to that theory which really made a lot of sense to me when I read it I automatically kind of went yeah that fits with my understanding of of stalking being a relational mm. issue it makes yeah
0: sense. because psychological disorders I mean they they were they were asking about whether they've been diagnosed is that right
1: yeah so they did acknowledge the limitations of that that they weren't screening and I'd be curious to see whether that sort of that same pattern applied to other populations as well mm. I mean it's they you know sort of acknowledge that it's got the same bias that a lot of research has in terms of using college students as as the sample mm. but yeah it would be interesting to see whether that same kind of attachment emphasis played out in you know clinical samples or things like that
0: mm. yeah I mean I couldn't think of a strong argument to, to say why, why not I mean I guess it depends if
1: the only thing that perhaps would be that the population that it was sampled from so it's like It's far more common to have non-secure attachment styles in, say, a clinical sample or a prison sample. Mm. Probably just be the proportions of people engaging in those behaviours that might be different.
0: Do you reckon there'd be a lot of insecure in a prison population?
1: Yeah, there's been a bit of research around that. I mean, for the same kind of thing, that, that sort of unsettled development, yeah, then impacting different emotional regulation, impulse control, stuff like
0: that. Yeah, and sense of boundaries and what's right and wrong. Exactly. And how you regulate that. Yeah,
1: and how you deal with your frustrations towards other people. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, yeah, so I I found it quite interesting, and it certainly was the only thing I came across that sort of had that theoretical bent to it. Yeah. Admittedly, I didn't read everything out there, but the theme that kept on coming up was around attachment. Stalking, yeah. the, so.
0: I did I did read an article it was called stalking of psychotherapists by current or former clients colon beware mm. of the securely attached exclamation mark mm. so I don't think I've ever seen an exclamation mark in the title of an article no it was in psychodynamic practice 2006 by Glyn Hudson others so there's great discussion about the insecurely attached client they talk about the difference between erotic transference, thought to be the healthy love relationship that forms a part of a therapeutic alliance of work. And that, that can be actually sort of therapeutic mm. versus eroticized transference, which is thought to be the more severe, tenacious, and often considered to be a delusional disturbance that may manifest itself in an pro- inappropriate attachment with it within the therapy room mm. or stalking behaviours outside it. And, and, that, and then when they go into other other views about a whole lot of stuff but they talk about insecure attachment yeah personality disorders borderline personality narcissism Mm -hmm. yeah so much much the same as what you're talking about
1: yeah and I kind of when I was reading this I was thinking as well given that I knew that you were reading about you know clients who who stalk their psychologists thinking about the ways of working with that say you had someone who was engaged starting to engage in those behaviors and you were still seeing them yeah it would be entirely different to approach it from an attachment perspective than to approach it from some other perspectives in therapy. I'm thinking mm. about sort of you know managing managing the reasons why that behaviour might occur like when you conceptualise it as an attachment behaviour instead of something malicious or reactive or whatever mm. way you want to frame mm. it. Whether that then impacts how you manage that dynamic,
0: I would think that you would very much have to set boundaries mm. and setting boundaries like and actually. Having a discussion with a patient around yeah. why they've inappropriately caused a boundary issue, mm. I think would be a mistake. You would
1: assume that would be.
0: I, w- I would be urging on the side of terminate. Oh, not well, not terminate, but setting a boundary. Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. Is, is what, and I'm not. Which is not what you do in attachment based it. stuff. This is this is the yeah, yeah. So like a parent, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like a parent yeah. to a child is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You'd set firm boundary that still contained care and interest, but a firm boundary that it wasn't okay to go yeah. outside of that.
0: Rather than, say what, like flying off the handle or kind of yeah, or going, I'm going to terminate the, the Yeah, slice. rather than something punitive. Or avoidant. Yeah. And sort of like, going, yeah. oh, I, I know you called my house last night, but I'm not going to talk, talk about it. Or, yeah. i not going to talk about it. I did see you, you know, scratching your name into my car. Yeah. I'm not going to talk about it yet, Yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, the opposite of stalking, in some respects would be termination like early termination by a client yeah just
1: failing to appear
0: failing to appear and particularly around if you think about like a model of infatuation Mm. resentment and then thinking about from an attachment perspective why so why someone might drop out of therapy absolutely if there's a particular crux point
1: and i mean i don't know about your experience but mine's often been that sometimes it'll be when something really sort of important has happened in therapy or something where there's sort of been a connection or something that's kind of um, shifted or that a client's felt particularly understood that then it might be the next session that that don't they show withdraw. up. withdraw, yeah. yeah. Or don't say much. And then we'll kind of, if you sort of work through that, then things kind of keep on going. But it can be quite confronting for some people who are used to withdrawing when...
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I when think a situation, that and that's when you have to... That's when you hope that you've built the therapeutic alliance well enough that they do return. Yeah.
1: And, or at least talk to you about it to be able to.
0: And that they know that they can return. Mm. And I think also the therapist holding your fire in terms of not flying off the handle and go, oh my God, they didn't come in. I'm going to give them seven phone calls today. yeah. And to play a, play a calmer, steadier game Mm. around, okay, I'm going to. They didn't come in today, so I'll call. I'll, this is my plan about when I'm going to call that person yeah. to try and re engage them, but not to come across as needy because if they're pulled away. yeah. But that's very difficult if you actually are very, very worried about that patient. Exactly. And they haven't turned up. Yeah. And you know it was a crux time. Yeah. It's a very, very difficult line to walk. Yeah. Particularly if you're trying to hold yourself steady mm. and wanting to be that steady, calm, secure base. Secure base that we keep talking about. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Should we take a break?
1: Yes, sounds good.
0: Okay, we'll be back in a few moments. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Shrinks Pod. We hope you're enjoying the show. And if you are, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe or listen to your podcasts. If you are interested in checking out more about us or wanting to look at the articles that we talk about, you can check out our website at shrinkspod.com. And if you've got any feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you want us to, to talk about a particular topic, please send us an email at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com.
1: Or send us messages by carrier pigeon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, just, just, just give the carrier pigeon the IP address and uh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yep all works out in the end. all works out in the end.
1: So this is the part of the show where we talk about something interesting we've stumbled across this week. In my case, it wasn't so much stumbled as actively sought out.
0: <laughs> as is frequently the case.
1: Yes. So, you know I love books.
0: Look, the colour-coordinated bookshelf in your house is impressive.
1: Yeah, it's very satisfying. It's also sort of broken down by genre.
0: And is it, remind me, is it, is it you're the psychologist friend that I've got that has the books arranged by height?
1: There is a bit of that, but mostly it's colour. Yep. If there's varying heights, then it's arranged like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When I had, when I had CDs, I did arrange my CDs. I had two shelves of CDs and I I arranged it in a sort of a uniform colour. Yeah. So so like so it went from sort of red to orange to yellow to yeah. to sort of a green to a blue. And then the second shelf was black or white, right? Cuz that was yeah. that was kind of the way that the CDs kind of ended up being divvied up. It was unbelievably useful. Yeah. Like it was it was so I could find any CD that like It's really interesting quickly.
1: because you you do remember the well, I think perhaps if you have got a visual kind of memory, yeah. I remember the covers of books, yeah. and so it's not hard for me to find anything.
0: Or, you know, and the other thing is like if you do alphabetical, but yeah. that's just a nightmare. I tried
1: that. They didn't fit in the bookshelves.
0: With my LP collection, it was alphabetical for a long period of time. Fair enough. Yeah, it's just a mess.
2: Mm.
1: So, <laughs> the, <laughs> so, I searched for books. Mm-hmm. The article I found is called Library Collections and Objecthood by Anne Roll in the International Journal of the Book, which I didn't know existed, <laughs> in 2014. It's a journal
0: me... about books, not a book about books.
1: Yeah, it gave me so much pleasure. Or a periodical about books? Hmm, I like that.
0: <laughs> anyway, continue.
1: Anyway, so I'll start by reading a, a quote. It's well acknowledged in library literature that a human-emotional relationship exists between the physical print volume and its reader. Fear and nervousness often come into play when librarians are asked to weed physical collections, despite the fact that duplicative physical collections can often be quickly located. <laughs> so this article is, it draws on an old, an old essay from the 1960s, and it talks about how the act of holding and reading a book isn't just you holding an object that It has an almost theatrical component to it that mm. often you know people describe liking to read in particular locations or when particular things are happening. So, you know, like reading when it's raining outside oh. and you've got a cup of tea and a absolutely
0: of and the image that came to mind was reading, um, like in the top bunk of a beach house that yep. we go to in summer and sort of you know me being the only one in the room and the light on. Yeah, exactly, yep.
1: exactly. There's sort of like a, a whole stage that's set. It's not just about having this physical thing with words on the page. yeah. And so it's kind of talking about how there is something different about physical books and about, about doing that and having moments away from digital technology just to be with something that's sort of physical and takes you to an, into another world. Yeah. But that you also kind of create this whole environment and there's mm. sort of a ritualised element of it.
0: I spent a lot of time in my undergraduate degree, so that was in the late 90s in the libraries there and it's mm. sort of really pre the wholesale adoption of electronic yeah. journals that kind of came in as I think it was in my honours year which is around 2000 and there is something magical about reading and being amongst these books and these this there, there's, there was there was something about it I, yeah. I, I couldn't put it into words but yeah
1: absolutely and there's also that thing of that you're more likely to stumble across something as well in that sort of environment something mm. that you might not be looking for but that kind of captures your eye
2: mm.
1: yeah so so the article was essentially about the about that facet of reading and then it briefly spoke about the anthropomorphism by book lovers of books mm. that we kind of talk about them in a way that other people say talk about animals so, yep. you know we're really distressed if we see that someone's thrown a book out or has done something to it that's harmed it mm. it's as if it has it has a life and it has...
0: Well, I mean, look, I can definitely talk about that. Like, So the so the Peter Mac, mm. so if, you, if you're a listener and you don't know what the Peter Mac is, it's is this world-famous cancer hospital that's located in Melbourne and it recently moved from its long-time home to a brand-new, spectacular-looking building. Yeah. And in the process, they downsized or, I think, got rid of their library mm. and I knew this was happening... And I was in there and I got friendly with the librarian and, and was asking about what's going to happen to all these old books. Yeah. And then I managed, I managed to get her to give me like 20 or <laughs> 30 psycho-oncology related texts. Including yeah. this, this tomb, like literally a tomb, like of, of a book called Psycho-oncology, the first edition of it. Yeah. Which is like if if you think about Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and there's a bit, and he gets out, he gets out this old book, and he opens it with a key, and there's a, yeah. there's a picture of the Ark. It's a it's a book that thick, yeah, right, yeah. and like, I, I and from was,
1: the text that you sent me when you got that book, it, it felt like <laughs> discovering that.
0: I'd forgotten that, but yeah, so yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, so, and 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 because I'd spent a lot of time in that library. Getting those books and, yeah. and, and particularly using that one book in particular yeah. for period of time. Yeah, it takes on us. Certain... I'm very, very, very pleased I've got that book.
1: Yeah. I have recently been given an assortment of A.A. Milne, so Winnie the Pooh mm-hmm. books that were belonged to my stepdad's mum. And she had them, she was given them in the 30s. And they're beautiful, like the cloth Mm. covers. And she's written her name in the front, you know, know, children's handwriting. And the illustrations and things are gorgeous and sort of half falling apart. But it's that sort of thing of going, well, I must now tend to this thing. I must make sure that that these books are are safe and looked after. And yeah.
0: It's interesting. I think over time, certain books I've grown more attached to and certain books I've got less attached to.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and there are some that I just yeah couldn't bear to part with. So yeah, I was comforted to read about other people having the same kind of experience.
0: What's what's one or two books that in your collection that I have a really sort of you know evoke a strong kind of connection?
1: I have multiple copies of *The Handmaid's Tale* by Margaret Atwood. It's my favorite book ever. Really? Yeah, yeah I read it over and over again. And so I have the original copy that I was given, and then whenever it comes out in a new cover or whatever, I end up buying it. It's just obsessive. I have some books from when I was a child as well that have, you know, some of them have ripped covers and and pages coming out of them and things like that that really hang on to. And then there are some that I've kind of written notes in.
2: Yeah.
1: Which... Always, I was kind of torn about that because my nana was a librarian, and so it was very much like you don't do that. And then kind of going, well, if books are something you interact with.
0: Oh my! So, so as part of the degree, the masters that we're doing, I ordered the interpersonal processes book by <laughs> yeah. Tabor, yeah. Which, if you are a budding therapist, inter, was it interpersonal yeah. processes by Tabor, which is T-E-Y-B-A. Er, mm. uh, get a copy of that. It's very, very interesting. It's yeah. very poorly edited, so there's quite and dense and repetitive, and, yeah. and a whole lot of stuff. So there's like eight. There's like eight editions of it. Yeah. So I bought like the sixth edition because mm. it was like twenty dollars versus ninety or something. Yeah. And, and so I got a used edition, yeah. and in it, whoever there was the student who had it has written all through this textbook, <laughs> and and kind of like and it's but, personal things, but isn't it? It, it's it's not like. Yeah, it's not like I oh, you know, like commenting on the theory, it's like this is exactly what's happening between me and Phil, you know like, <laughs> <laughs> And like throughout and brilliant. So, and so I took if I'd read the page, yeah. I would cross out the comments so I knew that I'd I was up to that You'd point. You read that point. So it's
1: like when I was in the the bookshop and found that book on narcissism and it had a questionnaire in there about whether you're a narcissist or not <laughs> <laughs> and someone it was a new bookshop and someone had written in pen their in answers pen. to all the narcissism questions and I just thought that's just a perfect indication that yes you are a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah. I, was,
0: yeah I was just looking at my bookcase some of the books. I, the books that I have Held on to are ones that are sort of like odd books, like mm. in terms of there's like there's a book up there by Ian Banks called Raw Spirit, which is so Ian Banks is this science fiction author and also a fiction author. I think he died recently of a he might have been pancreatic cancer. Mm. Amazing science fiction books if you're into science fiction, and Raw Spirit is it is a fiction book about him. Somehow, he gets the job of going to all the distilleries in Scotland, whiskey distilleries in Scotland.
1: Gets the job or assigns himself the job? No,
0: I think someone pitches it to him, right? Like, in the search of the perfect dram. And that's the setup of the book. It is the most incoherent, rambling, (laughs) uh, self-indulgent read. Yeah. And if you like whiskey. And you read it and you still, you come away with it going... I'm a bit confused as to what I've just read, yeah. but I know I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I love stuff like that.
0: And in the, the book next to it is called Last Chance to See by Douglas Adams. Mm, yeah, and, and that's a that's a cracking read about because Douglas Adams is such a great writer, that's yeah. about endangered species and the the last chance to go and see these endangered species. And goes and sees. Like, an update. Yeah, with yeah. um Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. So the the Kakapo, yeah. which is this endangered parrot and the white rhino and stuff like that. So it's very, mm. very interesting. The other book I was looking at, oh, there's the Danbusters, Busters, which mm. is a really interesting book. But there's a book called Martini, which is all about <laughs> martinis yep. and the making of martinis and these set chapters on like how, you know, how long should the toothpick be? Yep. How, how, should, how you should make the ice. Yep. and it's yeah. I think perfect the tag- for your ACPD. Oh my gosh, the, the the tagline is called like "How to Live a Martini and Mix a Life." I think <laughs> so it, that's by Frank Morehouse. That's really really good. Beautiful. Uh, so, so, what did you come up with? So I came up with like because we we did stalking, right? That's pretty heavy, so yeah. it, it's psychological, but it's actually in the New Yorker, mm-hmm. the Glossary of Happiness by Emily Athens. So it's just a short little article, and it talks about psychologists called Tim Lomas, who uh, went to the International Positive Psychology Association Conference, and he came across a presentation, a Finnish student presenting, uh, Emilia Latia, I probably said that wrong, from Helsinki. Mm-hmm. And she was giving a talk on SISU, a Finnish word for the psychological strength that allows a person to overcome extraordinary challenges, which is similar to what American might call perseverance, or the trendier concept of grit. But this word has no real... Direct translation. Direct translation. Mm. It connotates determination and bravery and a willingness to act when the reward seems out of reach. And this student had framed it as a universal human capacity, but it just so happened that the Finnish had noticed it Mm. and coined a word for it. And so this started Tim Lomas thinking about this and thinking, you know, well, you know, there must be other words and experiences and things that foreign languages have described that have no direct English counterparts. And so he developed the the positive lexigraphy project, an online glossary of untranslatable words. Mm -hmm. So he had the first edition, there was 216 expressions from 49 languages. Mm -hmm. There was three groups of categories or three categories. So the first group of words refers to feelings such as him which is German with the deep-rooted fondness towards a place to which one has a strong feeling of belonging. Huh. The second refers to relationships. Now, I, I'm not sure how to say this at all. It's from a language called Yangon. pai hmm. a look between people that expresses unspoken but mutual desire. Daridi, which is Australian Aboriginal, although there's like about there's like hundreds of yeah. Indigenous language, a deep spiritual act of reflective and respectful listening mm. and finally a third cluster of words described as aspects of character so this is sisu or feng yum which is mandarin chinese for personal charm and graceful bearing ilunga from tsuuba, being ready to forgive a first time tolerate a second time but never a third <laughs> and uh he's sort of noticed several patterns In compiling this group of words, a handful of North European languages, for instance, have terms that describe a sort of existential cosiness. The words koslig, which is Norwegian, mysa, Swedish, hygge, Danish, gisellig, which is Dutch. And they convey both physical and emotional comfort. And the question is, you know, does that relate to the fact that the climate is colder up there and you would value the sense of being warm and secure and cosy inside?
1: Like that, um, what's that Danish word? It's something like hoog or something that means to get together with your friends and have a sort of warm environment and drink and talk and yep. feel good together.
0: Yeah, and so so they're talking about, you know, well, perhaps you can start to link culture to, to geography and climate. And in contrast, southern European cultures have words about being outside and strolling outside and savouring the atmosphere. Mm. And those words, like the French "flâner" or the Greek votar, might be more likely to emerge in those cultures. And so they talk about that as being speculist and they debate the links between language, culture and cognition. Mm. You know, if you've seen Arrival, they talk about, uh, the movie Arrival, they talk about, you know, linguistic relativity Relativity posits that language itself and the specific tongue we happen to speak shapes our thoughts and perceptions.
1: Which I didn't realise was a really controversial topic. Oh, really? Yeah, I've, I've got a friend who's. Um, but
0: they're teaching the heptopods mahjong.
1: <laughs> I know. I have this friend whose daughter is studying linguists. Linguists, that's not a word. L- um, linguistics. Linguistics, thank you. Um, friend whose daughter is studying linguistics and they sort of have. Debates about this, my friend and his daughter, because he uh, speaks two, three languages. Yeah. And three. And is certain that when he's thinking in a particular language, his intentions and emotions and cognitions are different than when he's thinking in one of the others. Yeah. And so they have this ongoing debate about who's right. But apparently it's quite controversial. But
0: I think it would. It would make sense. would make sense. Yeah. Like, you know, using. A Mac is different to using a PC mm. in sort of certain ways, so you would imagine that there's sort of some transcendent stuff, but mm. also that the way that you phrase things is, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm not. I'm not a linguist, but
2: mm.
1: very interesting.
0: Well, so I thought that was a nice palate cleanser after <laughs> absolutely stalking.
1: Yes. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll catch you next time. See you Bye. we